The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show. Brought to you by Aramco. We ask which F1 team is best placed to lead the pack chasing Red Bull next year, given McLaren's recent revival, and answer a bumper crop of your questions. Welcome to another edition of the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. We're here to keep your tech appetites wetted in the gap between the Japanese and Qatar Grand Prix. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and far more significantly, I'm joined by Mr. F1 Tech himself, Gary Anderson. Hello, Gary. How did you enjoy Suzuka? Yeah, Suzuka's good. It's, it's always such a great circuit. I mean, the emotion of the uh, the viewers, the spectators, um, is unbelievable. But the circuit itself is a real driver's circuit. You know, it's somewhere you can really exert your muscle on. Um, you need a good car through that that fast S's at the beginning because if you have a car that understeers a little bit or is a snappy rear end, you lose time so quickly through there. Um, but but the whole circuit in itself is is amazing. I mean, I I go back to remember when one thirty R wasn't flat out. It, it's still called one thirty R, but it's actually a bigger curve than it used to be. It used to be a bit, a bit of a tighter corner with no runoff area, as Alan McNish found out at his cost um, a few years ago. But you know, yeah, Suzuka, one of the greatest circuits. You know, along with Spa, Silverstone, and I, I have to put in there Monaco and Monza because they're extremes of the calendar, I suppose you might call it. But those are the circuits that are real driver circuits as such. So um, nice to always watch a race there, and it's always a it's always a good race. I think the other thing about Suzuka is, as time goes on, it feels more and more of an outlier, doesn't it? As a circuit, it's always very distinctive and a unique track in many ways. But it feels more and more old school in the best possible way, doesn't it? Both in terms of the driver challenge and the challenge to the cars. Yeah, I mean, the challenge to the cars is enormous. Uh, challenge to the drivers is enormous. But the the fact that the you know the runoff area there isn't lots of it, um, and where there is some, you pay a price by getting in the gravel or whatever. Um, so, you know, it's it's a sort of self-disciplining circuit, I suppose you might call it. Um, there's only a couple of corners where you see the, the FIA have to keep an eye on, on track usage. But again, even even in those couple of corners, they're not corners where you can really make a lot of ground, to be honest. It's, you know, you, you, you usually lose as much as you might gain. Um, it's one of those circuits where it does invite a little bit of argy-bargy because up through the S's there, through Degner 1, Degner 2, you know, there's no opportunity there. So you've got you've got the herp and to, to make a dive up the inside of somebody and you've got the chicane to make a dive up the inside of somebody and that's about it i don't i don't really understand you know i'm not a fan of drs so don't get me wrong here but i'm not really i don't really understand why they have drs down uh, the pit straight when you go into turn one you know more or less flat out you don't touch the brakes so it's down to the driver to press the button and why you don't have it coming up to 130r um because you know, if you had to define a circuit that's difficult to pass at, Suzuka is one of them. And if DRS does function and help overtaking, then you should have more of it. Again, as I say, from my point of view, DRS is a horrible thing, but it's on the cars. It's become part of racing. And I don't really understand why they, you know, they, they have done it that way. It's Suzuka only had it once a lap as opposed to some other circuits, which have been toying with three and four times a lap. So, uh, We'll see. Maybe the, the jury's out on that. Maybe next year they'll have more DRS. Or maybe 
we can all wish for it to be gone and no DRS. Well, the hope is that one day it might not be necessary, but I'm not sure F1's going to be able to get to that point, unfortunately, but we'll see where they're at for 2026. Those regs are still in progress. But it is interesting because Azuka is a great example of that inversely proportional relationship between the almost quality of a driver's circuit and the ease of overtaking. I know it's not exactly linear somewhere like Spa is a great driver challenge and you can pass there, but there's a lot of circuits that are, are great driving challenges, but passing really is very difficult. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where as you go through time, you know, we've, we've bred drivers now that don't have to, you know, plan a pass. You know, I've seen in the past with the Senna's and Nigel Mansell's and Alan Prost and that, where they would, they would plan a pass for three or four laps, you know, and then execute it with one big hit. At the minute, we just seem to get the uh, the drivers have, have been bred now that they, you come and sit in somebody else's gearbox, you get anywhere near them, and then you moan about them pushing you off the track. Um, so it's, you know, I think it's just the, the era that we've gone through in the last you know, 10, maybe more years, just has bred this, uh, this you know, you've got an artificial overtaking capacity with the DRS. And as you say, some circuits need it. I can understand that, but as I've said many times, from my point of view, I'd love to see the DRS used if you're not within a second of somebody, so you can close up to somebody. But then with, when you're within a second, you you have to do it yourself. And and that would mean that the, the pack would always be tight because as you as you closed up and somebody caught them, then you couldn't use your DRS, but the guy behind you that's three seconds behind could. So he would catch you up. So you'd always have a tight pack. And that puts more pressure on the driver. That's that you know leads to potentially more mistakes. So um, I don't know. There's there's room for review, I think, on circuits where DRS is something um, beneficial or something that's just a, a a mirror signal maneuver package, which is what I hear about it. Yeah, you feel there's definitely mileage there for improving it. I've always liked the fact that it could maybe create contested braking zones, but. Too often you've still got DRS while you're flying past. I know it's difficult because the speed differentials being what they are and it's different from car to car. So I think that's something for F1 to certainly have some consideration to. They've got a system that works, but yeah, it's a fairly basic version of that. So uh, yeah, let's see what they can come up with in the future. Well, let's move on to, as always, our, our first main topic, which is a free choice for you, Gary. So what's at the top of your agenda tech-wise today? Well, I think there's, there's there's really four teams, I suppose, that I'd like to look at as far as performance is concerned, and the the the, the change of the of the guard as such. I mean, obviously, um, Red Bull had a bit of a drop off in Singapore for some reason. I think you know I'm scratching my head as to why that happened, and I think they're probably scratching their head just as much still as to why that happened because there is no black and white answer. You know, we can talk about humidity and temperature and circuit conditions and all sorts of stuff. But when you look at their domination over the rest of the races this year, I'm not sure that Singapore stands out as something that I would say is vastly different from any other track. Um, they, you know, they weren't they weren't really competitive. Never mind the fact they didn't win, but they weren't right up there. You know, qualifying second, third, fourth. You know, they were really, really were struggling. So it's about the development area, a development route that teams have taken. And I think on the back of um, of Red Bull being poor in Singapore, they would have put a massive amount of uh, head-scratching time into Suzuka and made sure they come out with someone that was pretty impressive. And obviously, Max Verstappen showed that was very possible. Um, as for Sergio Perez, I think it was a, a weekend to forget. I mean, it never it never went right for him from the first first lap of the race to the last lap 
to the last lap of his race. Um, it was like dodging cars. So in reality, you know, Sergio needs to go away and scratch his head a bit as to why why these things are happening. Um, yes, for sure, the car is is conceived and developed around Max Verstappen. And why would you do anything else? You know, the guy brings you the results. Why would you think about doing it around someone else, you know, around um, Sergio, for example? And, and instead of qualifying fifth, you might qualify fourth. Um, and instead of Max qualifying in pole, you might qualify third. So it's it, it's wrong to to sort of complain about Red Bull following the Max Verstappen route because it obviously works. You know, he did that race in Suzuka. Never made a mistake, just just drove away from everybody. But then you've got the other fight between Ferrari uh, and Mercedes, and now McLaren latching onto the back of that, or even in front of that. And I think what we see there is that Ferrari have um, improved the consistency of their car. I wouldn't say they've actually made the car faster, but they've, ma- they've made it better for the drivers to exploit their talents a little bit more. So... On face value, the car, the Ferrari is going a little bit better, but it's mainly because of getting more aerodynamic consistency. Whereas um, McLaren have gone, have taken two steps in a way. They've made their car faster and they've made it more driver friendly. So they've they've taken a step forward as far as pace is concerned. And the, and the other team I mentioned there, Mercedes, uh, I mean, I still wonder if they have any idea what these regulations require to make the car go to go better, go faster, be better balanced because Suzuka has a bit of everything. Slow to medium to high-speed corners, all very, very important. And basically, you know, they weren't they weren't in the game there at all. Um, for McLaren, a team that's, um, you know, they're a privateer team. They use the Mercedes engine package. They do everything else themselves. Um, and they're standing on their own two feet and doing a very good job. They really latched on to how to make the ground effect concept or the ground effect cars uh, work and that's very very important because it's easy enough to make the car look like a red bull but it's always quite difficult then to make it work like a red bull and i think mclaren are the one team that's shown they've got a handle on both of those um, they understand the visual concept and how that alters the airflow and makes the, the car function correctly with the with the flow structure. And I think a little example of that is Red Bull changing their radiator inlets a few times and what they were doing with that. You know, they got smaller and wider, smaller and wider. And McLaren have gone about it and achieved the same sort of thing by putting a blocker in to the radiator inlet, uh, sort of a packer really, I suppose you might call it. Um, so they've made the radiator inlet smaller but they didn't want to go to the extent of having to put new side pods on the car, so they found another solution to the same, to the same development direction, which is quite, is quite nice to see because you can do that, you know, by putting on a packer, it can, and I think it did for McLaren end up with actually better cooling. But more importantly, you're using less flow to get that better cooling. You're just optimizing the radiator duct a bit better, which means you've got more airflow around the side pods to help generate more downforce and improve that flow structure. So it's a, it's a bit of a double, a, a win-win situation. And uh, whenever you see a team find a different solution to the same problem, it's always nice to see that. I think McLaren are, are achieving that now, and that shows they have a good understanding of where they're trying to get to. Yeah, the interesting thing with Mercedes is obviously it really showed their weakness in slightly quicker corners. And you had Lewis Hamilton talking about the fact they've got a strong front end, but 
haven't got the rear grip to go with it. The driver's having to work quite hard in those long corners with their throttle use, that kind of thing, to get the best out of the car. And obviously, Hamilton was saying, well, look at what McLaren have done. You know, there's a clear direction we have to go in. And in broad terms, he's right. But as you say, it's not just about making something that visually resembles something. You've got to understand it. And that, to me, just flags up the fact that Mercedes doesn't seem to have a good grasp of all those things, controlling the aero centre of pressure, the behaviour of the car when it's in your, and all those sorts of things that Red Bull's got almost this fine control over. And you get that through the detail work and the understanding, not through just something being broadly the same shape as something else. And that that's slightly concerning for Mercedes' hopes for next year, because I can't imagine all of that is within the architectural limitations of the car. There's some fundamental things that they're still not getting. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, their understanding of the car just doesn't seem to be there. Or the understanding of how to make the, exploit the aerodynamic package just doesn't seem to be there. As you say, the visual concept is only one thing. It's all the other stuff that goes with it. That visual concept can alter your flow structure around the car, which means that the other stuff... Um, can work better. But, you know, it doesn't matter what your visual concept is like in reality, you should be able to end up with a car that is all right for the driver. It might not be as fast as you want it to be, but it would be a reasonably well-balanced car. And it's easy, you know, for for, Hamilton, for Lewis Hamilton to say that, um, you know, the front end's really good, but the rear end can't keep up with it. Unfortunately, there's two ends to a racing car. And there's also, you know, 80k, 80 kilometer corners up to, in Suzuka, up to, you know, 320, 330 kilometer corners. So you've got very, very important high speed balance and you get very important low speed balance. And that's the, that's the challenge of building a Formula One car is to get that, that balance through the car, um, through the speed range. And, you know, the easiest thing to do is complain about it. Uh, it's not an easy thing to go and fix, but whenever you've had, what, 18 months or something, um, and 30 races or whatever it be, maybe even more than 30, 35, 36 races so far with this regulation, you need to you need to think, hang on a minute or two. Why, why haven't we got on top of this? There has to be a reason for it because you should have got a good indication. I think one of the things for me is that um, when Mercedes go to a race meeting, they themselves don't have any real idea of, of where they're going to be. You know, as I say, if you had a balanced car and you were qualifying 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th every weekend, then you know who you are. You need more grip, um, and you just sort of exploit what you've got a bit further. But um, if you go to a race meeting, one one race meeting, you got you know loads of understeers slowing you down. Uh, next race meeting, you got you know snappy rear end that's slowing you down. Next race meeting, you get too high a drag setup on it. You know they're all just different setups. They're all all around the same basic problem somewhere, and that's what you need to address. Is it? Identify the, the basic problem and in the short term put a bandage on it, which you can do. In the longer term, then you have to develop that bandage to be, you know, a positive and, and make the car faster. It's very easy within the question of next year and which team is, if any, going to be able to take the fight to Red Bull, which I think everyone wants to see. We want to see a fight at the front because Maybe historically you'd say Mercedes are the ones you'd expect to be because of their recent success. Ferrari's got all the resources, etc. But then you look at McLaren and they've made so much progress this year. There's no question that from their starting car to what they've got now, and this was something they realised late last year, they understood they'd got something wrong and it took a bit of time to redress it. But that's one thing you can point out and say, yeah, they've taken a leap in understanding 
of how the car works. And so you could make a case for McLaren being the team that's on the most encouraging trajectory. But then again, their car's still got some weaknesses. It's still got some peculiarities in the way it handles and that kind of thing. Lando Norris keeps saying that, though we've made the car faster. It's still got low, but it's still got that slight inconsistency and weirdness. He can't drive the car the way he wants. He likes to sort of you the corner a bit more, keep the minimum speed up, but he can't really do that because the McLaren isn't consistent enough. So there's question marks against all of them. But can you make a case that McLaren actually might be the one that's on the trajectory that could make it at least best of the rest next year and maybe even a car that could bother Red Bull. Well, I think I think best of the rest is definitely on the cards. Um as I say, you know, Ferrari they're a bit strange because from one weekend to another anything can happen, but on the face value over the last 3 4 race, 3 races, um you'd have to say that they seem to have got a reasonable handle on getting more consistency. I know Carlos Sainz won in, in Singapore and congratulations it was a fantastic one as well. But it was one with certain characteristics to that one that you probably can't repeat at many tracks where you just backed everybody up so much. We've seen it before in Hungary, um, but it, you know, it doesn't work that often. But in, in saying that, you know, they're still, they're still, they're still got, were competitive and they were competitive in, uh, in Suzuka and they were competitive in Monza. So you say over the last three races, I've seen a light at the end of the tunnel for Ferrari. Now the problem is you've got to move that forward as well because, you know, they're not, that light at the end of the tunnel isn't burning that bright relative to Red Bull. Um, and again, I think you'd have to say the same with McLaren. It's not burning that bright, but it's got them to a position where Red Bull will be keeping an eye on the rearview mirror to see how close they are really getting. And if you had to pick any team that sort of looks like they've um, made the step in the right direction and have the understanding of making the step in the right direction, it would be McLaren. So, um, the winter is going to be a, a real test of motivation because I always say you need to prove to yourself that the direction you're going is correct um, because it's so easy. You have to make so many decisions over the development stages of what your car characteristics should be because that's really what we're talking about now. It's not just about finding another 10 kilograms or 20 kilograms of dynaforce for, for no drag. It's about car characteristics that will take you forward. And those are the decisions you're going to have to make every day as you get numbers back from CFD or wind tunnel as to how things are changing those characteristics. And um, so you need that you need that real basic understanding um, of confidence, I suppose, in the direction you're taking. McLaren seem to have got that. Ferrari, I don't know, question mark. But again, Red Bull, don't count them out. They're going to find lap time over the winter for sure. Um, so it could be a bit of a stalemate just as, as to where we right, are right now but I do think that McLaren if they can start the season in a strong a stronger position as they are right now then you could see them nipping uh, at Red Bull's heels on quite a few occasions. And it does speak very well of the team because when they were talking at the start of the season about well we know it's going to be a slow start we're going to have upgrades during the year that'll change direction that'll turn things around they were talking about being fourth quickest car by this stage of the season I must admit I was thinking I've heard this from a lot of teams and it never really happens I was uh, I was a bit concerned it was a slightly hubristic approach because they also you know, privately seemed ludicrously confident about the the package that came in for Austria and I remember thinking could be setting themselves up for a fall but They've actually done it. They've really delivered on their expectations. And that's phenomenally impressive because that's very, very rare in modern F1 for such a big turnaround. Remember, they scored something like 17 points in the first eight races. 
and they've been they're their second highest scorer in the last seven. So complete transformation in in form, which yeah, I didn't expect. And I think I've almost exceeded their own expectations. And their own expectations originally seemed ludicrously optimistic. So it's an amazing story, really. It is. You know, the, the thing we, we all heard, again, for the last year and a half is that these grand effect cars are very hard to simulate and to understand the underfloor of the car near the ground because it doesn't work. It doesn't work as predicted. And, and that's one of the areas where I've always said, you know, you need to have a bit of a gut feel here and there as to what you're seeing in the wind tunnel and will that be reality when you get to the track? Because it's again, whenever we had low down front wings on the car, you know, and, and they were very, very um, pitch sensitive or ground sensitive to clearance. It was the same then, you know, whatever the, the, the front wing did in the wind tunnel was going to be, give you a direction for um, what it would do on the track, but it would be vastly different what it would do and, and, and the amount of it. Um, the, you know the percentage of loss would be much much more or much much less on the track than it was in a wind tunnel but you'd have to have this sort of gut feel as to the direction it might take you and it's the same I think with the underfloor of these cars you can get all the numbers and pile them all up and you can you know at the end of your analysis sheet you get a, a yes or a no was it good or was it bad but at the end of the day you still got to take out a pinch of salt and We've seen on many, many occasions cars arriving at the track with developments on the underfloor, the edges of the underfloor or the diffuser, and basically they, they didn't work. Whereas McLaren seem to be able to bring that stuff to the track now, and they seem to be able to get a result out of it. Um, so, as I say, that somewhere in their structure of personnel, they've got someone that's, that's, that's got a bit of a handle on this gut feel, as I call it, you know, there's certain things you're trying to achieve, certain things you're trying to do. And if you just tickle the edges and just make it work a little bit more uh, here and there and get positives out of it, that's that's the right way to go. You know, to, to change how the flow structure of the car is dramatically um, will, will give you a headache. But just taking what you've got, knowing that it's given you the results on the track and then exploiting it just that little bit more here and there um, in the same direction and seeing positive results out of it in the wind tunnel. 99.9% of the time you can go to the track and it'll work. But as I say, just changing the whole flow structure and trying to find something new, which is what uh, Mercedes are going to have to do. That's a difficult task. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see where things are in six months' time, but great effort by McLaren. And it should be noted that it's not just down to a change of technical leadership because this direction was actually set under the technical directorship of James Key and the way they've changed it has made them more effective, they think. But it's not a complete change of direction everything they're doing but it's just an adjustment i think i'm very impressed by what they've done there under the leadership of uh, of andrea stella you're listening to the race f1 tech show brought to you by aramco aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence as the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. 
Well, as we know, listeners to this podcast understand the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. Every episode, we offer you the chance to ask us about how something works in F1 and send us a question to answer on a future episode. And if you'd like to do that, send a written email to podcasts at therace.com, or you might prefer to record a voice note and send that to us, letting us know who you are, and we'll play it on the show. Regular listeners will know this section has started a little earlier in the episode than usual, and that's entirely because so many of you have been sending in great questions that we decided to dedicate much of this episode to a bumper crop of them for Gary to work through. So let's get on with the first question of our bonanza. First question says, hi, Ed and Gary. As it happens, my name is also Gary. I am an engineer from Indonesia. I follow F1 firstly because of the tech, so your podcast is a gem for me. My question is regarding car setups. What are the things that you can actually adjust on the car, other than the obvious ones like suspension, front wing and ride height? Is it only mechanical, or is there any electrical stuff that you can adjust? Well, the first thing you've got to take, I'm very pleased that you like you enjoy Formula One and you enjoy our tech podcast, because that's what we try to do with this, is to bring you a little bit of a closer picture to to what goes on. Um, the years of experience, I have 50 years of Formula One experience one way or another. Um, so it's not all, you know, cliff face, you know, um, current stuff, but I have a fairly good uh, understanding of, of where things take you. Um, so yeah, going, going on to your question, setups, I mean... Everything is adjustable. Some of it's adjustable uh, from the cockpit, from the driver's point of view, and most all of it is adjustable from the garage when the when the car visits the garage. So obviously, you can go through the mechanical setup: springs, anti-roll bars, um, shock absorber settings, um, shock absorber you know stiffnesses, characteristics uh, of the 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 vehicle dynamics, how the car moves around with given given forces on it i.e. breaking, you know, 6.5G, cornering at 4.5G. These are horrendous loads that are being put into the car. And it's about managing that and controlling that to get the best aero platform you have underneath the car. Mechanical setup-wise, you obviously don't want to go too far one way or another because, you know, you've still got to climb over these curbs through small chicanes, slow-speed corners, Um so you don't want to make the car solid. The car needs to have some sort of compliance to allow the driver to feel those loads increasing in the car. The driver feels the car basically from from the load in the steering wheel. Um, if the load's very heavy, very high, then he'll know the car's you know about to maybe oversteer a little bit. If the load's very low, he know he knows the car's breaking into an understeer. Um, so you know the, the the mechanical side of the car is all about trying to give the driver enough feedback, but make the car the car platform stable enough to get the best aerodynamic um, forces out of it, consistent aerodynamic forces. Now, as you say, front and rear wing, I mean, more downforce on the car. Um, front wing is a is a variable, so you use that really to get the balance between the front and rear of the car. Um, and no real driver likes the car to be oversteering in fast corners because you know it's only seconds away or, you know, millimetres away from hitting the barrier because the rear just snaps on you and, and you can't catch it. Most drivers will tend to live with a little bit of understeer, knowing that's what the car is going to do if, if it does get worse. Um, and you've got a little bit of a window if it gets if the understeer disappears on you. So they, your downforce level is sort of set by the rear wing, which obviously includes the drag level of the car and the straight line speed. And then you balance that with the front wing. Um, so then within the car, you've, the driver can adjust or the team can adjust when it's in the garage, but the driver can adjust on the track. Sort of brake balance front to rear, 
if he's locking up the front brakes at a certain corner, he can change the brake balance very quickly by pressing the button, and it will automatically just change it by a certain percentage, um, preset percentage that they'll have in there. Um, you can change the differential uh, setting so the car, the, the differential will lock more when, the, when you're braking or be freer in slow speed corners and, and more locking in high speed corners. Um, and the driver can do that during the, you know, while he's running as well. So, as I say at the beginning, everything is adjustable. The big decisions you have to make is which one do you want to adjust? To help the problem, so you know, and within the setup, there's a massive amount of things you can do, but um, you want to make to make a setup change that will make the car feel better, but mainly make the car go faster, and that's what the challenge is with uh, with variable setups. And of course, there's endless things that drivers can change on diff maps, brake shapes, all these sorts of things that can make a huge difference. So it's uh, it's a baffling array, you'd have to say, uh, that, that's available in terms of not just the fundamental setup, but all those things. So yeah, there's uh, a huge amount of refinement goes into these cars. The next question comes from Mike from Canada, who says, Hi there, I've been following F1 since the middle of the 80s and love the tech stuff. Two questions for Gary. So we'll take the first question. The first is a follow-up to the FlexiWing episode. Why do the FIA care about the dynamic flexing so long as the static load tests are met? Can they not design the static load tests to target the areas of concern and then leave the teams to it? I feel like there are too many rules and also penalties in F1 these days. Yeah, it's not. Uh, you're not far wrong there, to be honest. You know, that's what the, really the load tests were about, um, was to come up with a set of tests that the team could do themselves back in the workshop, see if the, if the wings complied, and then, you know, everything was fair game from there on in. Um, it seems to have moved a little bit. There is that one catch-all rule of, you know, the, the, all the bodywork in the car, the aerodynamic surfaces in the car must stay rigid at all times during the event. Uh, it's a very, very old rule. It's been there, and as I say, I, I use it as a catch-all. If something comes up that the teams don't like, then they would, um, you know, they, they would be able to sort of, or that something comes up that the FIA don't like, then they'd be able to sort of come in and, and have a go at it. And, and let's take an example of that. We, we talk about this front wing flexing. Now, if you build a car, a current Formula 1 car, if you have a, a stable sort of centre pressure, um, let's say at 40% front, 60% rear, just for a nice round number, and you have that through all through the speed range, then the car will understeer in low-speed corners, will probably understeer in low-speed corners, and or over, be oversteering in high-speed corners. So what you want to do is be able to pile on front wing for the low-speed corners, and then let it back off or you know, allow it to back off for the high-speed corners when the load increases and the wing rotates and basically you get less wing angle. So you know, that, that's a sort of characteristic that's been around since, since the cart started, or the donkey started pulling the, the cart. Um, so there's no change there over the years, really. That's always been something you'd try to do. Um, and with the limitation on the, the, the actual weight distribution of the cars, which the FA have got a limitation there, it's not easy to actually make the car handle better because you can move the weight distribution around because there is a certain window you're allowed and it's not very much, it's, you know, plus or minus one and a half percent, I think. So you're sort of stuck with that characteristic. So the, the main change can be aerodynamic. And the front wing has always been fair game. Whenever the rear wing's flexed, you know, backwards high speed to reduce the drag, that was something that was seen as a bit of a no-no because it's sort of, safety-wise, it's not the greatest thing. How far do you let it go before you know, a rear wing falls off or something happens? 
And then you could take it, you could take that further and you could say, okay, the flexing of the floors, you should be able to cover that with a load test so the floor doesn't seal onto the ground um, because it flexes. Now, again, that's something that's been happening for, for Dunkey's years. Um, as far as I can remember, you know, we've always wanted to have flexible floors so the sides of the floor would seal a bit better. But then you could take, if you look at Red Bull radiator duct and let duct, you could say they've been shutting down that radiator duct uh, size into more of a letterbox. So, you know, when the car's going slow, uh, slow speed corners and it's, you know, driving around at 100, 150, you know, 180 kilometers an hour, then the cooling, the cooling demand is quite high because the engine RPM is still up there. So the heat rejection from the engine is still the same. So you want lots of air through the radiator. But when you get the high speed, then, you know, you don't need as much air flow. You don't need as much air to go in that inlet. So do you get to a point where the, the teams are building radiator inlet ducts that flex with, with forces and speed? Um, so, you know, something has, to, something has to control some of this stuff. I agree with you. And if you had load tests all around the car, you would just go on forever with them. So I think the, the uh, everything must stay rigid during the event um, is a good rule for a catch-all rule. And I think the FIA will fire it as a warning shot quite often. But at the end of the day, really, it's a, it's a warning shot. And it says to the teams that we are keeping an eye on this. Just make sure that what you're allowing to flex is, is a practical solution to a given, you know, within a, a certain window. If you go way out wacky, then we are going to come down on you. So I don't think we've seen any big differences since the, the, the flexing rule was brought in, TD19 or TD18. Um, but I think it's just, as I say, it's the FIA and that warning shot across the bows to say, you know, our eyes are open, we're looking at things, just make sure you're doing the same thing. Yeah, it's a bit of a don't take liberties kind of rule, isn't it? I guess is the, uh, the way to look at that. The second question from Mike from Canada is... We hear a lot about team performance being circuit-specific. What is it about the cars that can make performance vary dramatically from circuit to circuit? Is it worse now with this generation of ground-effect cars? Um, well, yeah, circuit-to-circuit circuit specification. It is one of those things where, you know, you will always focus a little bit on, on one type of circuit. You know, your, your, your Mr. Standard circuit, I suppose, you'd take as probably something like Silverstone um, or Barcelona as being... You know, if we make the car faster around there, we'll probably be a bit better everywhere. Um, so, you know, you take into account slow speed, medium speed, and high speed corners. Um, with these ground effect cars, it's it's become more difficult because you are producing more of the the downforce um, or a bigger percentage of the car's downforce from the underfloor. And the underfloor is one of those things that run near the ground. So it's it's it changes dramatically as the ride height changes. So, you know, if you just had a nice linear underflow that kept working, as the rear of the car would, you always run the rear of the car softer than the front of the car, um, mainly because the, the front has to withstand, you know, six and a half G braking forces. The rear only has to withstand, you know, one G of acceleration forces. They've both got to withstand lateral forces of four, four and a half G. So you always end up with the, the rear of the car a bit softer just to get better traction, the front of the car a bit stiffer just to get that support during braking and corner entry. Um, so the rear of the car will, will compress more as the speed builds up. Because again, if I use the same terminology of, you know, you put 40% of the air load on the front axle and 60% of the air load on the rear axle, um, you you end up with the rear of the car getting closer to the ground. And as it's doing that, then the under the underfloor, downforce that the underfloor produces, if it was just linear, would 
be you know progressing progressing faster than the, the downforce from the front rear wing so um you know you need to manage all that sort of stuff so the the answer to your question is it worth these ground effect rules um it can be better because you can generate downforce moving rearward with speed because the car is compressing at the rear of the car and the underfloor is improving in its performance but you need the basic concept of the car in other words the center of pressure and how it does move around on the car to be um to be able to achieve that you need it to be correct to begin with to be able to achieve that so circuit specific um if you have you know if you've got a, a good base model that you're looking at to develop your car around and say i.e silverstone or maybe barcelona as your test track or your virtual test track and you make the car better there you'll probably get it better everywhere else might not be at Monaco, might not be at Monza because the car might be too draggy or might might not produce the low-speed downforce for Monaco. But in general, there's more tracks like Silverstone uh, and Barcelona, Suzuka, Spa, you know, name them, uh, lots of them. So you might as well try to make your car as good as you can for Mr. Average track as opposed to a Monaco extreme or a Monza extreme. The next question comes from Paul O'Connell, who says, I'm an amateur Irish racing driver who loves the V10 era of F1 specifically. This may be a stupid question, but I've been racing for 20 years and working and testing tyre pressures to cope with different track characteristics, conditions and temperatures. There is a lot of rubbish talked about what tyre pressure to use for different conditions. In modern F1, the Pirelli tyres often have to have increased pressures for a weekend. What are the reasons for this and what should a team expect from the performance of the slick tyre after increasing the pressures? Faster warm-up, less tyre life? Similarly, what advice is it to run a slick tyre at low tyre pressures? Says the same question applies to wet tyres also. And Paul also adds, really love the show. It's a highlight of my week when the podcast lands in my inbox. I've always been a huge fan of Gary's from the Jordan days, and it was the Jordan team that got me interested in motorsport. These days I race in the Irish Formula Boss Series and occasionally the European Boss GP Series up against cars from the V10 and V8 era. So thanks for that. Well, I think the best thing to remember, Paul, is that uh, once upon a time, Eddie Irvine and John Watson were amateur Irish racing drivers, um, both of them having a bit of a drive in the V10 area, I suppose. But um, you know, you're only an amateur when you're when you're on the up and coming. You never know what the future's going to bring for you. So going on to your question, tire pressures. Um, again, wet and dry, wet and dry tires are a bit different, to be honest. Um, so I'll try. To, I'll start with a slick tire. Pirelli, the pressures is a critical area for Pirelli because of the structure of the tire. Um, Basically, these cars are generating massive loads. I mean, at maximum speed, these things are up, you know, three and a half or four ton of load they're putting on the tires. I don't think Pirelli ever really, really expected that with their development. And one of the reasons of moving from the 13-inch rims to the 18-inch rim was to have uh, less less tire wall structure required to support the car um, so that they could, you know, help reduce the pressures a little bit. But that didn't really work. So still, we're, we're seeing high pressures. Um, and it's a bit like if you look at um, a bicycle tire, you know, you run 120, 150 PSI on a bicycle tire. If you look at a rear tire on a tractor, you run 10 or 12 PSI in it. So, you know, it depends on the volume of air inside the tire as to what, what you want to try and do with it. But the higher the pressure, basically, the, the stiffer the tire and the less the grip. You know, anything you stiffen up on the car, be it the suspension or the tire, they go hand in hand. Um, you know, one PSI roughly in a, in a tire um, is equivalent to probably 50 or 60 
pound stiffer spring on that corner of the car. So, you know, you're stiffening the car up by, by increasing the tire pressure. But it's also worse than the spring because at the end of the day, um, it reduces the compliance of the tire. So theoretically, uh, you would like the tire to be softer um, in pressure, and that would allow the tire to be more compliant, and it would give you a, a larger contact patch, I suppose you might call it. When you put the tire pressure up, you decrease the contact patch. You mean, it means the car slides a little bit more, generates more temperature in the surface of the tire, and degrades the tire faster. So, albeit that, um, you know, it's needed for the structure of the tire, it's not actually good for the performance of the tire. So, it's one of these sort of sort of catch uh, circle of events. Once you start to do it, you can't do much about it. Um, Faster warm-up, not really, because, again, a higher-pressure tire will, will slide more. You get more temperature in the surface, but not into the carcass of the tire. And it's, the carcass of the tire is what you want to, to sort of get warm and to free up. And I, I classify sometimes a tire as a bit like a, a new pair of shoes. You need to wear them a couple of times before they feel comfortable because they're just a bit stiff. And the tire, new tire, is like that. It's just a bit stiff. But there's lots and lots of material in that tire making up a structure. So what you want to do is load the tire up nicely. Um, and that's what you see the teams weaving. It doesn't really generate tire uh, temperature so much as it, it generates that sort of lateral load in the tire. It frees the tire up a little bit, gives it a little bit more compliance. Or they go out and sit in the end of the pit lane, allowing the tire pressures to, to drop because the temperature is dropping. Um, and then you have to go out and try and bring the temperature up. Um, so it's a challenge, really. The pressure, tire pressure is a challenge. I don't know what's the right thing. But going back to Eddie Irvine and, and once upon a time in his Jaguar days, um, putting a set of tires on, we were run Michelin tires at that point in time, and we had to put a set of tires on the car that had, had not been in the blankets or had been in the blankets for a minimal amount of time, so there was no temperature into them. And we told Eddie when he left the pits type thing um, that these tires weren't up to temperature. It might take a lap to get them working correctly. And he got to Lacoum through the, the complex up and he came back in the radio and said, I don't think I've ever felt a tire that's got, got as good a grip as this. And that was just because, you know, the pressures were low, the tire was moving. You know, I think it might have been a different deal if he'd gone through Blochemont and tried to get through there flat out because the tire might be moving too, too much. So taking that into account, in general, um, at Monaco, somewhere like Monaco, you'd want tire pressures pretty low, somewhere like Silverstone or Suzuka, Spa, You'd want tire. You'd be happy with tire pressures a bit higher because again, it adds to the stiffness of the car. Um, if you go, just move your across to your um, your wet tire is the same. It depends on the amount of wet. Uh, basically, you know, if you have higher pressures in the wet, you open the tread up so the, the tire can pump more water. But it's you know, it's very selective. It's very very um, uh, very very small window where higher pressures in the wet will even help you. But if it's really heavy rain, then yes. Um, we don't see the cars running in that these days. And I think the intermediate is probably very similar in characteristics to the to the slick tires as far as um, pressures and temperatures are concerned. So, um, yeah, you can play tunes with, with pressures, but it's basically for the structure of the tire. The next question comes from Alexandra Ask Goldstrand, who says, Hello and thank you for an excellent podcast. After watching the entire Monza race weekend, a question popped up about the free practice sessions and their purpose. The decision made from Mercedes seemed illogical to me, so perhaps you can enlighten me on the reasoning behind it and if it was a better decision than I think it was. 
During FP2, I think, Lewis, early in the session, was very unhappy with the car setup. He was not allowed to pit and get the setup fixed, but was told to finish the test programme. How sensible is it to focus on finishing the programme of a suboptimal of a suboptimal setup versus optimising the setup. Can you get good use of the data from a car setup you are not going to use come race day anyway? Seeing after how slow the Mercedes was then in FP3 and Quali, that seemed the wrong way to go. I would agree with you. Um, it's not really the right way to go at all. I think you, what, you, what you have is a situation where the driver will adapt to the setup of the car fairly quickly. He, you know, the driver goes into any lap with his his driving characteristics and he tries to exploit that as best possible and if you can't then you know if the car understeers you may turn in a little bit earlier you may change the corner from being you know a a more of a sweeping shaped corner to a v-shaped corner where you stop the car and turn the car and then accelerate as opposed to trying to keep the speed up through the corner so if you've got a a suboptimal setup in the car that's characteristics are that you know as i say the car's understeering too much then you would you wouldn't get their proper data because the driver wouldn't be able to drive the car the way he wants to drive the car to potentially put it on go fast enough to put it on pole. So I think any decision made to just keep on going will will mean that the data you get can be put in the bin. Um, but some of these teams set themselves a a sort of run run schedule to go through certain things. So there may have been something else in the background of that run schedule that they wanted to see, you know, temperature characteristics for the brakes or you know, something else that they needed to see if it was still climbing or if it was saturating and stopped climbing. Um, so we don't know the whole detail of it. But uh, as far as the, the handling characteristics of the car is concerned, um, I think that we, we end up with a situation where you need the car to be able to be driven the way the driver wants to drive it. Um, and then you get proper data to try to make the car go faster. Now, when you, when you say at the beginning, you think it was a wrong decision for Mercedes, um, it seemed illogical. I've seen quite a lot of that this year, to be, or well, in the last couple of years, really. I mean, up to the up to 2021, you'd have said they were on top of everything. Um, and they went to the circuit with the car in very good condition. You know, they were always there. They were out front, blah, 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 you know, no problems. But I'm not seeing that this year. So somewhere along the line, they've dropped the ball for sure on on some of the decisions they're making and obviously the decisions they made with the with the car concept. So I wouldn't be happy with, with heading into a long run with a car that's suboptimal. You'd want to try and make it as near right as possible. Maybe not as quick as it could be, but you want to make it give the driver characteristics that the driver requires for his driving style. Next up, a question from Brent McLeod, who says, with the cycle of F1 introducing new aero regulations to combat dirty air in order to improve racing and teams continually finding ways to circumvent them in order to claw back time, could F1 regulate around the dirty air generated by the cars instead of the aero geometry itself? If the teams were required to provide F1 with the relevant CFD and wind tunnel data to prove compliance, it would directly accomplish the goals of improving racing while also allowing the teams to design more varied and interesting aero for the cars. Well, Brent, it's not you know it's not a bad idea. I think if you set up a you know if you set up a um, some type of airflow characteristics that you wanted that you had to comply with, let's say within a meter of the outside of the car or out, outside of a meter of the outside of the car, so you got um, whatever the whatever displacement the t- the uh, front and rear tires are doing to displace that airflow, and you can't um, change that characteristic then yes, there's a possibility. I, I mean, it would be one of these things about compliance and it would be about what's real on the track as opposed to what's real in CFD or from the data you gather. Now, the reason we see you know, such 
massive, very expensive error rates on the car is because it, um, you're trying to get the characteristics of the flow off surface. Um, so you, it's exactly what you're talking about. Um, basically, you know, you could you could say, right, okay, we'll have a, a standard FIA error rate that'll go somewhere, let's say, just in front of the rear wheels, and it'll stick out there by a half a meter or a meter or something outside the wheel. And at that point, we want it to be more or less, you know, just a a copy of the pitot tube, the airspeed, as opposed to any directional change. So it is possible. It is possible to have a test device for that. Um, and each team would have to run it you know, in a session at some point in time if there's a question mark. So, yeah, it's, it is possible. It's an interesting idea to say, because as I say, changing the geometry of the car or two or three people at the FIA or F1 sort of sitting down and coming up with a, a geometry for the car uh, that controls outwash and then giving it to, you know, a thousand uh, engineers spread around all the teams to find a loophole, you know, that will never work really because the teams will always find that loophole um, and they'll, they'll, one team will exploit it a bit further than the other. So interesting, interesting idea and, and, and not impossible, but it would be, you'd have to sort of set it in, in stone as to how it was policed. Um, and that's something that we're never quite sure of. But as I say, the error rate, FIA defined error rate that the teams would have to use now and again would be an interesting solution to that problem. We have a question now from Daniel Creekhouse, who says, Hi team, a huge fan of the whole team at the race, recently joined the members club and loving it. Well, thanks for that, Daniel. My question for Gary is, I've always been partial to the high-nose cars, going back to the Tyrrell and Benetton days of the early 90s, up until the Red Bulls of the V8 era. Would this style of nose allow for more airflow to the floor in this generation of cars? And would they benefit or hinder the somewhat lazy front end they seem to have? I know they were banned for safety concerns after Mark Webber's acrobatics in Valencia, but very curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, Daniel, it's, it's great to have you in the, in the members club. Um, that was an interesting accident of Mark Webber's, and, and I'm probably the opposite to you. I've never been a lover of the really high noses, and I've never been a lover of the low noses. Um, I think there's a happy medium somewhere. I think the low noses, we haven't really seen that incident yet where one car goes underneath another one. Um, and obviously then you, you come along the line and you say, well, what's going to stop that from chopping the driver's head off? Well, the halo is going to be a big help there. So, you know, you go around in a circle and you create two or three different regulations to achieve the same goal of safety. But as far as high nose and low nose is concerned, I think, I think it got a bit absurd. You know, there was, if you take the, the, the Tyrrell back in the 90s, uh, Jean Alessi. I mean, th that was nice. It was a nice sort of compromise of a very, very high nose with the, the droopy front wing and stuff. And then, you know, the, reg the regulations tried to police that. So then you got these steps and, you know, you got a nose that was just a square box with a, you know, a point on it, basically a beak. And then it stepped back up into the chassis because of the minimum chassis height you had to have. All that stuff got a bit, a bit horrible, I think. Um, Going on to really a question as to whether it would help the, the, the give the down, more downforce for the car, um, I would doubt it very, very much. I think the thing we've learned about about the um, the high nose, really, with the flat bottom cars that we had, it was all about the barge boards and getting as much airflow as you could through between the front wheels and allowing the barge boards to generate the outwash um, and the sealing system down the floor to get as much out of the floor as you could. The, the thing about the ground effect cars is it's, a, it's more about flow and flow speed. So what you see now with the cars is that the, 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 the flow that goes through the, between the front wheels, the splitters and the leading edge of the floor really 
um, turn that flow outwards. Um, so it minimizes the, the, the flow that's going into that area of the underflow at the leading edge because it's, it spits it outwards and gives you some outwash, which again helps seal the sides of the floor. And then the flow that's going into the middle of the car, the middle section of the car, is what the diffuser works on. The diffuser size is controlled to a you know, certain height and certain width. So that diffuser can effectively accelerate X amount of flow that comes in the front of the car. And what you want to do is not have too much flow going into the front of the car. You want to maximize that acceleration of the amount of flow that you're showing to the diffuser. So the diffuser pulls through the, the section between the, the inner two splitters, I suppose you might call it. So it's only maybe a quarter of the width of the floor, the flow that the diffuser is working on, as opposed to the whole amount of the floor. So more flow doesn't necessarily mean better downforce from underneath the car. It's just about managing the amount of flow you have. And I think what we have is a reasonable compromise, albeit that I, I still think the nose is a bit low. I think you should, the nose, the rear wing crash structure, there's lots of bits on the car should all be set at the same height. And, and for a simple height, I'd say the axle height is a nice height to put it all at because at the end of the day, you know, all the, all the, the stiff bits of the car or the impact resistance parts of the car, if they can all meet up because of something, you know, the, the axles of the car, the rear, the rear crash structure, the nose, all meet up at the same, same point, then in a lot of accidents, they will all meet up as opposed to being at different heights and, and causing different uh, characteristics to an accident. And our final question comes from Ollie Fitton, who says, Hi, Ed and Gary. I've been watching the 2014 F1 season review, featuring Mr. Anderson himself in his role as roving reporter. During the show, they talk about Frick, front and rear interconnected suspension, being banned after the British Grand Prix. It was described as a system for ensuring ride height stability to preserve aerodynamics through the corners and counteract rolling. It was apparently banned because teams were finding ingenious ways to gain performance from the system, and some teams were doing better than others. That got me thinking, could porpoising be solved with a nifty active suspension system? solution. Would it be feasible to adjust the suspension automatically to keep these ground effect cars in their apparently narrow ride height window? Thanks. Yes, um, a lot of talk about active suspension and um, and obviously the ground effect cars and you know active suspension. You could play tunes on the car with active suspension. Um, and we're going way, way back. I mean, in the 90s, we defined a car at that point in time. We were working with Lucas as our sort of control agent, control strategy agents or control system agents. And we defined a car of the futuristic, which would a futuristic car, which would basically be a fully active suspension car, but it also would have active active steering, active brakes. Basically, the driver would be an input device, to and then the car would react to in the best way possible. So yes, you could go all the way with active suspension, but it's it's been banned and it's been sort of kept banned, I suppose you might call it, because of theoretically the cost. Now a lot of people comment on our our uh, in our uh, comment section about you know having a, a simple system a simple active suspension to cure the problem but the challenge in formula one is always to meet the regulations and and make the best car possible within a set of regulations and the more you sort of allow it means the more mistakes you can make in other areas so again i'm not the biggest believer in active suspension to fix the problem right now because there are teams that I think we can happily say can fix the problem, have fixed the problem, um, and there's others that haven't. So it is possible to make a good car with within the regulations without it. If we go back to to Frick, yes, it was you know front and rear interconnected, 
Um, and basically, I remember whenever we were designing the, the, the Jordan 191 back in 1990, standing at the Silverstone and watching the Ferrari braking. Um, and, you know, you could see that the minute they hit the brake pedal, the rear of the car would sit down. So they were transmitting, you know, the, the, the braking load on the front axle to the rear axle and pulling the rear of the car down and giving it stability. So it's not, it's not new by any means having sort of cable connected or, or hydraulically connected or linkage connected um, front and rear suspensions, even diagonally across the car so you can also react to the characteristics of, of roll. Um, so it's one of those things, you know, you, you just set another set of, another box of bits on a car and you say, right, okay, fix your problems with this as opposed to not having them. And it's still the team's challenge to fix the problems. There's always other bits and pieces you can put on cars to to make it um, to make it better. But the challenge is to make the car as good as you can within the regulations you've got. So I'm I'm a great believer on in the independent suspension systems that we have now, mechanically linked across the front axle or across the rear axle, but not talking to each other front to rear. Let it you know let the team solve the problem and the problems the problems are there and can be solved. Thanks so much to everyone for those great questions and of course for the fantastic answers as well. We still want more because Gary has plenty more answers ready to go. So if you have a question about F1 tech, even if it's one you might think is laughably simple, because I assure you it won't really be, please send it to podcasts at theracecom That's podcasts at the hyphen race.com and we'll do our best to answer as many as we can. That's it from us for this episode, but we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode.